Hey, good morning for worship at First Baptist Ozark this morning. And uh, let me ask you to do this. It happens today that the uh, title of our opening song is a great reminder of why we are here. It's a great reminder to uh, sort of be a purpose statement to start the service with. So let's stand together and let's say the, the title to our opening song, which is also our purpose statement today, together. Here I am to worship. Here I am to worship. 
bow with me, please. Lord God, what we just uh, said and what we just stated in this song is why we are here. Uh, Lord, you are altogether worthy, uh, more worthy than we could possibly fathom. And we worship you, Lord, today in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that our offering today of worship, of praise, of giving, of studying your word uh, will be pleasing in your sight, Lord. And we'll walk away from this place a little bit more chiseled to the image of your son, Jesus, than when we came. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Well, we have uh, a... Uh, a connection card we would love for you to fill out. By the way, our connection team really, really, really wants you to fill this out. If you're a first-time guest, keep it with you for the duration of the service. Take it out to the connection uh, area out there, and, and you'll receive a gift today. It, it may be a new car. <laughs> it may be a piece of candy. You know, it, it could, it, it, the sky's the limit. Okay, so, so fill that out. And, and then uh, the, there's also prayer requests for everybody, so please fill those out. And pastor and staff will be faithful to pray for those. We meet every Tuesday morning, and we, we pray over those. So please, please do that for us, okay? Um, let's, uh, I just lost my order of service, and I'm the one that planned it, and that's not good. Uh, ah, there's a Redeemer. So we're going to sing songs today. Uh, that just remind us of all the great blessings that God has given us, and we're gonna we're gonna give Him thanks and give Him praise for those awesome blessings. This is a great old song that reminds us of that. There is a Redeemer. Yeah. 
sins, they are many, His mercy is receive our offering just now. Lord God, we come before you and, and we dedicate this time, which is certainly just as important an act of worship as anything we do, and that's the giving of, the, of our resources. Lord, you blessed us with them. We give you back the tithes and the offerings, and Lord, we ask that you bless this to the glory of your name and for the betterment of your kingdom, the further of your kingdom, and, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
and our minds away from Christ. This is the most important thought we can have this morning. Keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You're going to hear that in the message today, but let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and do the first verse of that song as we dedicate ourselves to study God's Word today. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of His glory Good morning. Let's open up the Word of God and look together 
Guess where? Yes, the book of Ephesians. Let's look together. Let's start reading to get a running start into our text. The title of the message today is Like Father, Like Son. Subtitle, Walk as Children of Light. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We visited that text, remember, when we partook of the Lord's Supper on Palm Sunday. Now verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. When you read that word, that phrase, sons of disobedience, your, your mind should immediately go back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. Which is defining for us people who are lost. Sons of disobedience. If you are a father today, then you've contemplated the simple reality that you make an impact on your children, positively or negatively. Don't we? We've all had those embarrassing moments when little Johnny says something at the most inopportune time, right in front of people. If you're a pastor, you know how this works, right? And you, you think about Words You think about lifestyle, decisions that we make. Uh, this usually happens or has happened in ministry. Uh, but it also happens if you're a pastor around the church, especially if you're around deacon's kids. <laughs> no, just kidding. Some of that's true, however. But we think about certain tasks that we watch our dads do when we were kids. I, I can remember... One I have in my mind is watching my dad with that large axe. Big old man. Just he'd sit one on, he'd get a big stump and he would sit a block of wood on top and he'd split that. And I thought to myself, when I get older, uh, I, I hope that I can, he probably was hoping I would too, but split that wood and have that kind of strength. We're even reminded uh, in country music, right? The country song says, Dad, I've been watching you. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. Don't act like you don't listen to those country music songs. And what does it say? I want to be like you, eat all my food, and grow as tall as you are. Well, I tell you all that to say to you that it's paramount for all of us this morning to remember who you belong to and who it is that the Lord God calls us to imitate. Listen, therefore be imitators of God. Now, that word is given in noun form. However, the verb form would mean to follow, to 
emulate. And this is the only time that that particular injunction to imitate God, written like that, is found anywhere in Scripture. Isn't that amazing? That in the context of the loftiest theology that could ever be presented, we are reminded that we are to be imitators in noun form. That's who we are. Of our Father that we belong to. Now, we know this idea is expressed all over the Scripture Even though that particular phrase, imitators of God, is unique to Ephesians, we know that Jesus himself instructed his disciples to be merciful. Why? Because your Father in heaven is merciful. Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus also says, Love your enemies, do good to them, you will then be sons of the Most High. Luke 6, 35. So again, emulate, that's what the word means, follow after And what a glorious picture the Bible presents in Ephesians of our Heavenly Father. We are to imitate Him. Chapter 1 verse 3 reminds us of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapter 1 verse 17. Here's another description of our Father. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Chapter 3, 14 through 15. The Bible says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And then chapter 4, verse 6. One God and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are called by God in this text To follow after and emulate our Father. Why? Because you are an image bearer. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed your life. Jesus has changed your life. Therefore there is a family resemblance. He is our Father. That beckons back to Ephesians 1.5. That we have been predestined into adoption, into God's family, and that's who we belong to. So this is what Paul has already been describing to us, right? This new life, this change, uh, the identity, the putting off and the putting on, it's been described in chapter 4, 17 through verse 32. But today, the pickup in chapter 5 is that we live these holy lives, compassionate lives, because we belong to the Father. So, we have seen the love of the Father and the love of the Son. Do you see it in verses 1 and 2? As beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us, gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, this particular passage of Scripture builds upon walk as children of light. Are you all listening? Walk in love, imitators of God, in His great love, the Son's love. But down in verse 8 is the central verse of this entire section, beginning in verse 3 and going down. Listen to this. For at one time you were, not you lived in an environment of darkness, you were darkness. So much theological weight right there in the text. For at one time, not you were in darkness, you were darkness darkness but now you are light in the Lord okay that's the key 
But notice how it is a chiastic structure. That's important. I know that's a big word, but folks, to interpret the Bible, there's a reason. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. Who are those? People who are sons of disobedience and are lost. And verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose it. So you're told before in verse 7, don't be a part of that. It's summed up in verse 11 again. And right in the middle, you're children of light, not darkness. This is the way God intends for us to live because of it. Paul identifies this reception of an entirely new identity, not as as anything he said before. He calls it light. Think about that for a moment. Light. That's our identity. Okay? So, this again calls us to live in accordance with our new identity. Interestingly, when Paul again says, he doesn't say this was the environment you lived in. This is the position you were in, the state you're in. Dark. But now that you're saved, you are light. That's your identity. That's what the community of faith should look like. And not only are we called to do that, but we're called to hold one another accountable. We're called by God in a rather stern way to expose it among believers when we are not walking according to our identity. Now, we don't like that, do we? We feel like as a believer that we should just be accountable for ourselves. But remember, you're in a community of faith. We're responsible for one another. And Paul doesn't let us stand aloof to that. So, I've titled it Beloved Children. Why do I do that? Because that's who you are. I want to remind you, you've been loved by God. Everlastingly. We could go back over those and we could study the love of God as extended to us in Ephesians. But I'm not going to do that. But let me, let me give you two more things that I think are important for us to think about. As we dive into this, I think this is vitally important. <clears throat> Chapter 4, 25 through 5, 2 has really been addressing how these sins can affect the body of believers. Y'all understand that? They're relational things. If you do these particular things, it, it damages the body of Christ here in the church. So it has been more in relationship to the love that we have for Christ and then how that love works out horizontally in the church. Y'all understand? But beginning in verse 3, the contrast is not the the comparative, comparative analysis or whatever you want to say about the scripture moves a little bit away. Do these sins that we're going to talk about affect the whole church? Yes. But in relationship to what Paul wants you to see, it's not any longer the relationship in the church is your relationship to God. That's important. As you begin to look at this, beginning in verse 3, it's so important. And with that being said, I want you to think about the fact that all of life is lived out before our sovereign God, who's the king. And what you do does not only affect who you are in relationship and, and how it affects this church, but it also grieves our God. Okay? This, this particular reality is what stilled my lifestyle and behavior and patterns of thought since the time I was a 15-year-old kid. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a narrative in the Bible that changed my life, and it's Genesis 39. 
And it's the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife had beholding eyes toward Joseph because he was a good-looking dude. And she sought to make advances against Joseph. But here's what Joseph says to her. Not only is your husband the king, but I belong to the king, the Lord God. And Check these words out. How can I do this awful thing and sin against my God? Let that sink into your heart and spirit. So I am so thankful that as a 15-year-old, I, I looked at that text and I said, Lord, everything I do is in view of you. And I have to have the understanding that when I sin against you, it's only you first, God, that I have sinned against. And I thought then, Lord, Joseph may have lost his coat. Do you know the story? One time she grabs after him and she ends up with his cloak, his coat. It's a lot better to lose your coat than your character. And I want to remind you that that stilled my heart and spirit. And I'm a rotten, good-for-nothing sinner. And I give no credit to myself. I give credit only to God in his wise counsel and sovereign work over my life. You're not only saved by grace, you live by grace. And I'm telling you, that's why I could marry my bride sitting on the front row. And I was sexually pure when I married my bride. Why? Because the Word of God gives you promises and confidence. And and folks, I'm telling you, you have to believe God. That He is way more satisfying than five minutes of pleasure. And that's the heart of this text. That you're beloved by God. That you belong to God. That all sinful behaviors are lived out before Him. So, I could preach on Genesis 39, but I'm not. Okay, now let's hit the text just quickly to go down through here. Here's the main point for today in verses 3 through 6. Beloved children, we will avoid immorality, greed, filthy language. Beloved children, right? Loved by God, belonging to Him, will avoid immorality, greed, and filthy language. So Paul turns his attention to moral exhortations. In other words... There's some things in life as a believer that are inappropriate. There are other things in life that are appropriate. Okay? So Paul has given us those things. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia is the Greek word for sexual immorality. It refers to fornication, sexual immorality, all any kind. Y'all ready? Any kind of sexual activity outside of a heterosexual male and female only committed marriage relationship. Clearly from the Bible. No ifs, ands, and whatever about this particular statement. So, the very similar, similarly, Paul gives this exhortation throughout the text of Scripture. In Thessalonians, he says to them... You know, pastors are asked at times, what's the will of God for my life? I'll give you one straightforward. It is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. So literally what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. So part of your sanctification in becoming more like the God to which you belong is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then it's sandwiched together with the word impurity. And that usually 
connotes uncleanliness or some type of filth. And it's interesting that most of the time, sexual morality and impurity is put together in the Bible. So it's not always limited to sexual sin, but it is often coupled with porneia in Paul's writings. For example, if you want to look this up, I don't want to look up every text for the sake of time, but Romans 1.24 puts it together. 2 Corinthians 12.21, Galatians 5.19, Colossians 3.5, and 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and verse 7. And it usually carries the idea of sexual impurity. So, it basically means we should live... Lives of pervasive holiness. Y'all know that First Peter text? It's always stuck in my mind and heart, living for the Lord. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. So there should be this pervasive holiness about us where we don't want to engage in sexual immorality because it is defined as impurity. You know, sexual immorality is at the top of Paul's sin list elsewhere in the Bible. Scripture condemns particular types of sexual sin. Let's say it clearly. He condemns homosexuality. Romans 1, 26-32. The Bible condemns fornication, normally defined as premarital sex. The Bible condemns adultery. Matthew 19, 9. He condemns incestuous relationships. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. He condemns bestiality. He condemns also lustful Thoughts. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Jesus spoke of sexual immorality as one of the evils that flows from a corrupt heart. Matthew 15, 19, Mark 7, 21. Paul will list it as one of the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19. Illicit sexual activity was an enormous problem. Think about what Ephesus was like. Shall I go back and preach to you our intro? No, I don't, I don't think I have to. But just think of how many believers came to faith in Christ and infiltrated the church. And so they, this was an enormous problem that they would have to overcome. Just being saved straight out of lostness and darkness and becoming a child of God. And, and thinking about living the Christian life. So there were adulterous relationships everywhere. Men sleeping with slave girls. Incest. Prostitution. Sacred sexual acts and encounters in local temples. And homosexuals were part of everyday life. Later in this chapter, Paul would give the appropriate context for, for sexual relations to occur. Chapter 5, a little later. You ready for it? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, be bonded to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. On the authority of the word of God, that's the only safe sex that you can ever imagine. It's in the confines of a husband and a wife joined together that become one flesh. That is Ephesians 5.31 and that is taken from Genesis 2.24. Outside of that relationship, any sexual activity is sexual immorality. It is porneia. People will try to perform all kinds of hermeneutical distortions to work around the teaching of Scripture. But Paul's reasoning flies in the face of such thinking. Why? Because he even says right after that, there should not even be the hint of sexual immorality in the life of a child of God. You were in darkness, folks. Now you are light. 
please let's not us fall into the temptation to try to rename sin. We see this everywhere, don't we? Let's just call it a gentleman's club. And that's supposed to fly under the radar, right? This particular show is for mature audiences. Huh. You know what that means to me? We often try to manage sin. We shouldn't be managing sin. But the Bible teaches us as God's beloved children that we are to have an attitude that we want to kill sin. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death the things of the flesh. And the first on the list is sexual immorality. Put it to death. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And it also tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.18 and 1 Thessalonians 4.3 that we have to flee from sexual immorality. Please remember that much of the ancient world and its sexual practices were wrapped up in idolatry. Now this text calls covetousness straight up idolatry. Did y'all see that parenthetical in here? However, Paul doesn't necessarily call sexual immorality idolatry. But folks, let me just tell you. Sexual sin is the result ultimately of not honoring God. And not to honor God is really to go after other gods. Which in turn is idolatry. Tony Marita says it well. Your life is an overflow of your heart. Your sexual sin problem is fundamentally a worship problem. Folks, let that sink in. When we have a a sexual sin problem, it's ultimately a lack of worship to the God that we belong to. Now, look, folks, to be clear, the Bible is not anti-sex. Rather, it is pro-intimacy in the confines of the covenant of marriage. Can we not hear an amen? I'm going to preach everything back over again if you don't, okay? Here it is, Hebrews chapter 13. Don't you love this? Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, all Christians. We set the example in this world we live in about marriage. Hear that. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Any other sexual relations outside of the marriage bed between one man and one woman is sexual immorality and condemned by the Bible. Undefiled is the marriage bed. I like it. Don't you like reading that? Praise the Lord that God has given us the gift of sex inside of marriage and it is a beautiful, worshipful thing and it's undefiled the way God gave it to us. Hear this. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You can't read that and say, yippee. No, you read that with a heavy heart. That God will judge. It's in the text we're going to see today. All right. Here's the deal. It's important to remind the church that we should be known for restoring Even restoring those who fall into deep sexual sin. Right? We should restore. Yet people cannot have healing without repentance. And repentance involves acknowledging and agreeing with God that what he says it is is sin. Believing that God through his grace can change your life. And then allowing God to change your life. And that means you submit to him. And you obey. So this morning's passage is a call for us to humbly repent. And it's also a call for us to encourage others to repent. 
How you feel about that? You know, the weight of being a pastor is heavy. You do know that, right? There's some texts we come across and it's just, oh man, this is, this is so easy to preach. I just read it. Well, when you deal with this, there's the weight of the enemy. There's demonic forces that do not want you to hear the truth. There are, there are those who, God, who the enemy puts within. Tares among the wheat. All of that comes bearing down on you as you prepare and as you get up in the morning. And you have these thoughts in your mind about delivering God's word. But we have to preach, thus saith the Lord. We have to preach what the Bible says. And so, categorically straightforward. Sexual immorality. Which is anything outside of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman is condemned by Scripture. Outside of a man and a woman in marriage. Listen, young people. 1 Corinthians 7 says it's better to marry than to burn with lust. Get married! Amen? What, what are you doing? Honor God. I have an office. I'm an ordained minister. Come on in there. We'll skip all the money. And you can just get married. That's the way it works. If you're going to have sex... It has to be in the confines of marriage. Can I get any clearer? Does anybody want me to turn the page and keep moving? All right. The next thing on the list is avoid greed. Paul mentions this vice in Ephesians 4.19. In context, this should, this is, the reference is unrestrained sexual greed. Some scholars believe that because it follows sexual morality, this greed has to do with sexual greed. Why? Because people have the attitude that they own everything, even someone else's body. And they just do it for self-gratification. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I think it's best to view the Greek term as generally referring to greed. And it's not limited. It's also part of, but it's not limited to sexual greed. Greed or covetousness is the insatiable desire to want more. And Paul tells us. That it is idolatry in verse 5 and also in Colossians 3, 5. We know that the 10th commandment addresses this straightforward in Exodus 20, verse 17. And not only does it say to us, do not be covetous, but it, then it begins to extrapolate what that looks like. Okay, you can go read that. Greed is also about the heart. Ultimately, desiring something more than God is breaking the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So Jesus tells us in Luke 12, watch out, be on guard against all greed. As one commentator puts it, perhaps he told us this because none of us thinks that we're greedy. Now stop for a moment. I mean, you, I understand we just had the heavy weight of sexual immorality, but just think about greed. In all the years of me pastoring churches, and this is the fourth one I've pastored, I've never had a single person walk up to me and say, Pastor, I am struggling with the love of money. Not one time. Is greed not sometimes a blind spot for us? Oh, folks, help us. Lord, help us. It can be a blind spot. We live in a highly materialistic society. It's the air we breathe. But the Bible calls us to put it to death. Jesus commands us to delight, to delight ourselves in God and to store up treasures in heaven. Luke 12. 
Paul said to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he reminds him a little later, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly blesses us to enjoy all things. Wow. Jesus said this, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus said. Luke 16, 13. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with being thankful for what you've been given. But you need to use it for the right purposes. We don't worship money. Worship is reserved for the king alone. Right? One final vice mentioned is inappropriate inappropriate for us is filthy language. Just very quickly. All three Greek words are centered around a sexual connotation. Okay? First is filthiness. It's shamefulness. Uh, it's obscenity. It, it means to act in defiance of social morals uh, with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. All you got to do is click on something on TV nowadays. You'll see it. Right? Filthiness. The term foolish, silly talk carries the connotation of the kind of nonsensical talk that emerges from people in attendance at banquets where drunkenness and sexual immorality were common. Wow. Filthiness, foolish, silly talk. How about crude or coarse joking or jesting? Well, that's risque wit. That is probably referring to quick-witted, clever humor employed in malicious or sexually vulgar ways. All right, let's put this together. Are you ready for it? All three terms refer to a dirty mind that expresses itself with vulgar conversation. We all know that there's nothing wrong with humor. There's nothing wrong with laughter. However, humor can be abused in malicious and vulgar ways. And even though you don't say it, sometimes you listen to it and you laugh. And it doesn't grieve your spirit. But it should. Should grieve my spirit. Should grieve your spirit. Now, quickly, let's talk about some motivations to avoid these sins. Are you ready? They've kind of been intertwined in here. Here's the first one. These sins should not even be named among God's people. Y'all see it? In chapter 5, verse 3, the Bible says clearly, should, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now, you're tempted there to think, well, that means we don't even talk about these sins. Because it says named, right? Would it be wrong even to name that sin? That has nothing to do with that. Okay? What this actually talks about is he is saying that an outsider who observes the daily behavior of a Christian should never have to, the opportunity to name one of these vices as characteristics of your life. Amen? It should never ever be named as characteristic of a believer's life. So when he uses that verb named, it's in the sense of characterizing someone's lifestyle or behavior. You don't want one of those things to be the hallmark of, of the trait that a lost person sees in you. Right? So by using that term earlier, kathos, he's referring to that which is, which is fitting. So Paul is stressing conduct that is inconsistent with their identity. You're the chosen people of God and certain things are not fitting for you. That's what he's saying. Those things are not fit. So we are new creations in Christ. 
We're like God in righteousness and holiness. Right? Chapter 4, verse 24. Don't forget who you are. There's this crucial connection between how believers think about themselves and how we behave. You are light if you're saved. You are not darkness. You are light. Please please remember, this new identity is not just some kind of rhetorical fiction. We really have been made new in our core. The core of your being has been changed if you are a believer in Christ. And we are to adopt patterns that are fitting for saints. Amen? Okay, that's the first thing. That's the first motivation. These sins should not even be named among God's people. Secondly, these sins should be replaced with thanksgiving. Now, wow, isn't that amazing? That in this list of vices, he turns around and said, really what ought to be a motivating factor is that you are a thankful person to God. Now, that is unique. Because I think if I were writing this, I would have said, think about purity. Think about holiness. The reason you shouldn't do these things is because you ought to be pure and you ought to be holy. But, but the writer says, be thankful. He claims that Christians should be recognized by thankfulness to God. What is the main reason? Because you're beneficiaries of a divine inheritance that's way better than anything this world has to offer you. You've been given... The Bible says it pleases the Father to give to us the kingdom. Right? So, the distinction between the vices that we're called to repudiate and the one hallmark feature that ought to mark our attitudes in conscious distinction to it is thankfulness to God. So thanksgiving should be characteristic for all believers. What an odd contrast. Again, Paul understands that gratitude to God not only is appropriate in response to the Father for his merciful gift of grace and salvation, but it's also fundamental. It's indispensable as a motivating factor for me to align myself with the purposes of God because it's so hard to sin against God when you're thanking him. Right? Being a thankful person helps you align yourself with the purposes of God. Don't laugh at his name, but he's a commentator, and his last name is Snodgrass. Here's what he says. Thanksgiving is an antidote for sin, for it's difficult, impossible, to both give thanks and sin at the same time. Sin prevails in us when we seek to gratify our desires. Conversely, an attitude of thanksgiving says, Father, you've been so good to me. You've given me what I need, and I refuse to sacrifice my fellowship with you for any kick that this world can give me. That's the attitude we should have. Paul will again address thanksgiving in Ephesians 5. And this time he will say, And be not drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And one of the actual results of being filled with the Spirit is, guess what? And be thankful. If you're controlled by God, filled by the Spirit, and filling of the Spirit doesn't mean you pull up to the gas station and get filled up every day. That's terrible theology. You got all of God you were ever going to get when you got saved. The issue of the filling of the Spirit is not for you to get more of God. It's for God to get all of you. And if you're controlled by the Spirit of God, you will be a thankful person. It's a result of being filled with the Spirit. Now, serious note, and I'm done. The last motivating factor is these sins will receive God's judgment. Listen to the text, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he gives this next warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul repeats the vices in this text twice, but this time, this is important, he actually uses a personal form of the sin. Did you notice? The first time he just lists them out. The next time he says, everyone who is sexually immoral. So now he is definitively categorizing people who are in a lost condition and he calls that particular person sexually immoral. In other words, it's not an abstract form at this point. So it is my belief that that serves to indicate that Paul is now commenting on the identity of those individuals. And he's not referring to believers who lapse into sinful behavior. Alright? This is important in the text. Are y'all listening? Did y'all get that? He's not talking about these sins in abstract. He's now identifying people with this particular behavior... And their identity are people who do not know the Lord. So the Christian is no longer an impure person. Are y'all listening? You're a saint. You're not categorized in the Bible as an impure person. If you're saved, you're, you're characterized as a saint. Now, can saints do bad things? All you got to do is check out the news. All you have to do is hang around the church. Right? So, the Christian is no longer an impure person but a saint. However, Paul knows... That believers can engage in these impure behaviors. The entire point of the passage is that these evil attitudes and conduct needs to be rooted out. The entire context is they need to be eliminated from the people of God. So Paul will make a parenthetic comment at this point, And he categorizes greed as idolatry. And folks, I hope you see how serious this problem is. How grave a sin it is. It is a prohibition. That's given all the way through the scripture. Why? Because our God is a jealous God and he will not share his loyalty with anyone else or anything else. Okay? I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that. But Paul's made it clear that believers will have an inheritance with God. Okay? And you're sealed to the day of your redemption. That means a true believer cannot lose his or her salvation. If you've been... Look, the sealing is the sealing of the Spirit. You've already been told that you have this incredible inheritance gifted to you by God that you cannot lose, that is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Yet, he wants us to think about the fact that even though we're sealed and we have this inheritance, these behaviors can creep in. We can sin against our God and go into these things, right? He even tells us in 118 that you're heirs of God. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. So this clause doesn't mean that we should be aware of our actions lest we forfeit our inheritance. It's the opposite force. He wants us to be assured that we are heirs of the eternal kingdom. And with that in mind, we should live like kingdom people, serve and love our merciful God with a full and grateful heart. That's the reminder. Don't live like unbelievers because they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you have given yourself over to immorality, impurity, and greed, and if you call yourself a Christian and you're given over to those things, and there is no repentance in your life, then you are excluded from the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? 
He's not asserting that believers, whoever, whoever falls into these sins, is automatically excluded from the kingdom. Rather, what he is envisaging is a person who has given himself or herself without shame or repentance to this way of life. You understand? Strong. There are strong temptations for all of us, not just new converts, to go back to a pagan way of living. Notice that construction. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and God. Y'all see that? You see it in the text of Scripture? Let no one deceive you of empty. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do y'all know this is the only time in the text that that actually is a construction, Christ and God? And why is that? Because I believe the writer is referring to the here and the not yet. The rule of Christ is now. Do y'all know that Jesus rules? It may not look like it, but he's not waiting to rule. He rules now. So what he's saying is this. If you're one of these particular people that, are, that is pointed out as sexually immoral, impure, and doing all these things with no repentance and no desire to turn back to God, then you're not living under Christ's rule now, and you won't be under God's rule then. Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom. That's what it means. So folks, understand this. When I was standing there singing this morning, I thought to myself, God, I'm submitting to you. Why? Because you rule me. You rule the world. And for us not to submit to our God in these areas of sexual immorality is to say, God, you don't rule my life. I won't have you ruling my life. You understand how important this is? The kingdom of Christ is his rule now. But the 1 Corinthians 15.24 says that Jesus is ruling now until he makes all his enemies his footstool, and then he's going to take the kingdom and subject it to his father. Give it to him. We're all things. So understand, you'll not have a part of Christ's kingdom now if you're sons of disobedience, and you won't have it in the future as well. And if that's not enough, check out the last part. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Comes is present tense. Why is that important? Because that means you're literally living under the wrath of God now. And you will ultimately be under the wrath of God in the future. Wow. Folks. This certainly, certainly is something we need to think about. Don't be misled by anyone who encourages sexual permissiveness. Thinking that such activities are just a matter of indifference. They're not a matter of indifference. Because this text says that God's anger... Righteous, holy anger will come against these sins. Don't let this world sway you to think that everything's okay. That that it's just a matter of indifference. It's not. It's a matter of sin against a holy and righteous God. And these sins will be judged. That's what the Bible says. It's a powerful reminder for us as a church not to be deceived. These vices, 3 through 5, will receive God's holy and righteous anger. As in chapter 2, verse 2, the forceful expression, sons of disobedience, points not to those who commit the occasional act of disobedience, but to men and women whose lives are characterized by disobedience. They do not submit to God's authority. Instead, they say, I'm my own rulership. I do my own thing. Okay? The use of the present tense again comes... That means now and forever. 
These will be judged by God. God's wrath is coming against the unrepentant. And don't let all the news broadcasters tell you anything different. It's coming. Don't let this world, don't let the college campuses, young people, don't let some nitwit stand up there and tell you, oh, everything's fine. There'll be no judgment. That's what they thought in Noah's day. That's what First Peter and Second Peter talks about. They thought the same thing in Noah's day. Oh, and then the scoffers in Peter's day were saying, it's been 2,000 years and God's done nothing. You better wake up. Judgment is coming. I don't say that rejoicingly. You never rejoice that sinners are judged. You want them to trust Jesus. Amen? So they experience this divine wrath. In conclusion, I want to submit to you that we have a God that we serve that is a whole lot more gratifying than a sexual experience. I identify him as Christ the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a God who is worthy of endless thanksgiving. Endless thanksgiving. We have a God who is pleased to give us the kingdom. Let's worship him alone and say no to cheap substitutes. Let's worship the Lord. All right. You know, I like to think about my past and how God has been good to me. Kept me from certain things by the thump on the back of the head. You ever got that? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens every one of them. And if you don't receive the scourgement of the Lord then you don't belong to him. There, not only did Genesis 39 help form my life, but also a song that I grew up singing called Guard Your Heart. For you young whippersnappers, what, what generation are we in now? X, Y, Z, K? I don't even know. What do they call you nowadays? I'll tell you what I call you. Same people that's always lived, sinners that need to be saved by grace. All right? That's who we are. Listen. You may not have ever heard this song before, but I thought in my devotions this week, praying to the Lord, God, we need to hear this song. It's called Guard Your Heart by Steve Green. I just want you to watch the words on the screen, listen to the wording of the song, and make a commitment to Christ. Okay? All right, listen to this.
Heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around. This is part of the invitation, but not all. Maybe a commitment needs to be made that you will live appropriately with what God has asked you to do, which means abstaining from sexual immorality in, in any form. Maybe you make that commitment today. Perhaps it's for you to say to the Lord, God, I confess that I am a believer and I have sinned against you in this area, but by your grace I will be changed. Whatever the Lord, maybe you're here today and you're lost and you don't know the Lord at all. Let me tell you something. The only way you can become a pure person, a faithful person, is not morality, not change in morals, but change in who you, who you worship. You have to know Jesus. You have to submit to him and believe that he paid the penalty to pay the price that you deserve to pay for your sin, but Jesus took it upon himself. Turn from sin, trust Jesus only to save you. Brother David is going to lead us. You can stand.
please pray for the person on your right and left. Let's listen to the, listen to the, listen to the invitational, but do business with the Lord. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? Oh, light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon One more verse. Let's sing together. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. remember it's the kindness of Christ that leads us to repentance Mm -hmm. what a kind merciful Savior we have don't ever forget about the holy loving kindness of Christ who love us thank the Lord for it amen Amen. well today is Miss Shirley Bumgardner's 85th birthday she's right back there in the back right God is good. Uh, There's no service tonight. And please pray for me tomorrow. I I don't know if y'all know them. They joined shortly after I came. They're the Kennans. uh, Dwayne and Vera. Mr. Dwayne passed away this week. And that funeral will be tomorrow at at Barnes Funeral Home. I think the family, the visitation for, uh, the normal visitation is 1130 tomorrow at Barnes Funeral Home. Okay, just pray for the family, the Kenan family. All right? God bless you. We will have church next Sunday night. And then the second Sunday, always remember this if we don't tell you because people got confused. Second Sunday night is visitation night. If we don't tell you we're not meeting, you come. We'll be here, okay? And third Sunday night, normally the Lord's Supper and uh, preaching, whatever. And we're usually off the fourth. And if we have a fifth Sunday night, we'll be off that one too. All right? God bless you. Before we go, let's take Paul's advice and say thank you. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the world.